Living wholeheartedly or being vulnerable is the way we can rid ourselves of the shame and the fear of not being good enough that our culture of narcissism causes. Narcissism is the standout feature of our culture. Because of this, we lack empathy to be compassionate and connected people. We are ashamed and afraid to be ordinary. We fear not feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed, to be lovable, to belong, or to cultivate our sense of purpose. We are ashamed because we feel never good enough, never perfect enough, never thin enough, never powerful enough, never successful enough, never smart enough, never certain enough, never safe enough, never extraordinary enough, never. The shame, in turn, drives our society's culture of scarcity, because everyone is suddenly hyper-aware of lack. Everything feels restricted or lacking. We invest sizable time calculating how much we have, want, don't have, and how much everyone else has, needs and wants. We compare our lives, our marriages, our families, and our communities to unattainable, unrealistic, media-driven visions of perfection. Scarcity is the never enough problem or the great lie, according to Lynn Twist, author of The Soul of Money. In her words, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep, the next one is, I don't have enough time, whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get, or didn't get done, that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack, this internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. We can deal with the shame and the culture of scarcity it causes by, not necessarily living in abundance, but by living wholeheartedly, by being vulnerable and worthy, by facing uncertainty, exposure, and emotional risks, and understanding that we, in our individual capacities, are more than enough. There are four myths about vulnerability that we need to rid our minds of. They stop us from daring greatly or living wholeheartedly. Living wholeheartedly is hard because of four myths attached to vulnerability. Each of these myths can be discredited. The first is our perception of vulnerability as a weakness. We think vulnerability is a weakness because we associate it with the dark emotions of fear, shame, grief, sadness, and disappointment, emotions we would rather not talk about even though they affect the way we live, love, work, and even lead. Vulnerability is not a weakness. Rather, it is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy and creativity. It is the source of hope, accountability, and authenticity. Making ourselves vulnerable on all fronts, socially, financially, emotionally, spiritually, etc., will give us greater clarity in our purpose and make our lives deeper and more meaningful. The second is the I don't do vulnerability myth. We think ourselves so strong that we are not prone to vulnerability. We think vulnerability is something that happens to other people. This is not true. Everyone is vulnerable, because everyone faces the uncertainty, the risk and the emotional exposure life brings our way. The social relationships that form the bedrock of the lives we live, without which we cannot thrive, make each and every one of us vulnerable. The third is the thinking that vulnerability means we let it all hang out. Celebrity culture drives this thought. Stars share the most intimate details of their lives with the public. Vulnerability is not about letting it all hang out, instead, it is based on mutuality, boundaries and trust. 
Oversharing, purging, or indiscriminate disclosure is not vulnerability. Vulnerability is all about sharing our feelings and experiences with people who have earned the right to hear them. The fourth and last is the we can go it alone myth. Our culture's rugged individualism, the go ye and conquer the world attitude, drives this myth. No one can truly go it alone in life. We need support. We need people around us who will let us try on new ways of being us without judging us. We need people who will pull us off the ground when life kicks us in our butts. And as social animals, that kind of support is critical to us. Daring greatly builds up our shame resilience, which helps us to show up and try again and again whenever we fail, until we get it right. We have moral courage and dare greatly when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable by allowing ourselves to be seen without getting bothered by what other people might think. Sharing something we've created is a perfect example of daring greatly. Sharing is a vulnerable but essential part of engaged and wholehearted living. Let's imagine that we have created a piece of artwork we want to share with a group of friends. Most of us attach our self-worth to how well the artwork was received. If our friends love it, we feel worthy. If they don't, we feel worthless. This makes us do one of two things. We either strip away the most creative or innovative touches to the art so as to make revealing it to our friends a less risky experience, or we do share the art in its most creative or innovative form and get crushed when the reception doesn't meet our expectations. So, shame shuts us down. It tells us we shouldn't have even tried. It tells us we're not good enough and that we should have known better. However, we can be shame resilient. We want our friends to like, respect and even admire what we've created, but our self-worth is not on the table. We understand that we are more than an artwork we have created. While it will be disappointing if our friends don't appreciate it, the effort is about what we did, not who we are. Regardless of the outcome, we have already dared greatly, which is what totally aligns with our values, with who we want to be. When our self-worth is not on the line, we are far more willing to be courageous and risk sharing our raw talents and gifts. We become more open to soliciting, accepting, and using feedback. We become engaged and tenacious, we expect to try and try again until we get it right. We become more innovative and creative in our efforts. When we dare greatly, we will err and come up short again and again. There will be failures and mistakes and criticisms. But if we want to be able to move through life's difficult disappointments, hurt feelings, and the heartbreaks that are inevitable in a fully lived life, we must not equate defeat with being unworthy of love, belonging, and joy. If we do, we will never show up and try again. Shame resilience is being able to say, this hurts. This is disappointing, maybe even devastating. But success and recognition and approval are not the values that drive me. My value is courage and I was just courageous. You can move on, shame. Foreboding joy, perfectionism, and numbing are the three major ways by which we mask our vulnerabilities. We mask our vulnerabilities because we want to protect ourselves from its discomfort. We feel safer and stronger behind the mask. We don't want anyone to see through our vulnerabilities. We do this in one of three ways, foreboding joy, perfectionism, and numbing. Foreboding joy is when we approach our joyful moments with deep foreboding. It is the fear that comes over us in our otherwise joyful moments, for example when we watch our children sleeping and suddenly fear for their safety. It rises out or our culture of scarcity and fear, we never feel safe, we never feel certain, and we never feel sure. We do not feel worthy of the joy we experience, so it comes across as a setup to the next disaster in our lives. In these moments of joy, we become very vulnerable. 
A constant attitude of gratitude in our joyful moments is the way to dare greatly and fight off foreboding joy. Perfectionism is the self-destructive and addictive belief system that makes us think if we look perfect and do everything perfectly, we can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Perfectionism calls attention to the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame, rather than help us avoid or minimize them. It is addictive too, because we don't question its faulty logic and become invested in our quest to look and do everything just right. We can fight it and dare greatly by appreciating the beauty of our cracks, by making the journey from what will people think to I am enough. That journey begins with shame resilience, self-compassion, and ownership of our stories. It requires us claiming our truths, about who we are, where we come from, what we believe, and the imperfect nature of our lives. It means giving ourselves a break and appreciating the beauty of our imperfections, and to be kinder and gentler with ourselves and with each other. Numbing is psychological isolation, the feeling that one is locked out of the possibility of human connection and a being powerless to change the situation. We all numb our feelings because of the need to numb our sense of vulnerability. An example is when we take to the bottle or get extra busy when we are faced with a crisis or a tragedy. Numbing deadens the pain of our difficult experiences, which is not good because it also deadens the thrill of our experiences of love, joy, belonging, creativity, and empathy. There is no selective way to numb emotions. You numb one, you numb all. You numb the dark, you also numb the light. We can dare greatly and fight off numbing by setting boundaries, finding true comfort, and cultivating spirit. We do this by feeling worthy of love and belonging, and by cultivating connection with family and close friends. Minding the gap, by cultivating change and closing the disengagement divide, is a great daring strategy. Minding the gap means paying attention to the space between where we are actually standing and where we want to be as regards shaming in our culture. Minding the gap requires that we simultaneously embrace our vulnerability and cultivate shame resilience. It means getting prepared to show up as leaders and parents and educators in new and uncomfortable ways, not because we are perfect, but because we are engaged and committed to aligning our actions with our values. When we don't do this, we get disengaged. Disengagement is the key underlying issue for a lot of problems in schools, communities, and organizations, and it takes on several forms. We disengage to protect ourselves from being vulnerable, from shame, and from feeling lost without purpose. We disengage when our leaders, bosses, teachers, clergy, parents or politicians, do not live up to their end of the social contract. For example, in politics, politicians make laws they are not required to follow or that don't affect them. They engage in behaviors that would result in most of us getting fired, divorced or arrested. They encourage values that they do not follow in their behavior. They do not live up to their side of the social contract, hence we disengage by voter apathy, refusing to turn out to vote at elections. In religion, religious leaders do not live by the values they preach. They leverage on our fear and the need for more certainty about spiritual matters by extracting vulnerability from spirituality and turning our faith into a push-pull relationship between compliance and consequences, rather than modeling how we can wrestle the unknown and embrace mystery. Thus, we disengage by becoming a faithless people. We cannot give people what we don't have. Who we are is much more important than what we know or who we want to be. We create a value gap or a disengagement divide when there are a space between our practiced values, what we actually do, think and feel, and our aspirational values, what we want to do, think and feel. For example, honesty and integrity are aspirational values, what we actually practice is rationalizing and letting things slide. 
The setting of limits is another aspirational value. What we actually do is to rebel because it is cool. It is inside of our value gaps or disengagement divides that we lose our employees, our clients, our students, our teachers, our congregation, and even our children. We might try to navigate this gap or divide by jumping across severally, but one day, it becomes so wide that we fall into it and self-destruct through the loss of any credibility we have. No one of our aspirational or practiced values is more important than the other. Both are important. Thus, it is our responsibility to mind the gap between the values we aspire to and the values we practice. It is the way for us to dare greatly. We can improve work and learning outcomes by fighting off the disengagement of the leadership of corporations and schools, by building shame resilience into them. The struggles of our education system and the challenges we face in our workplaces often mirror each other. No corporation or school can thrive in the absence of creativity, innovation, and learning, and the great threat to all three is when the leaders of corporations C-level executives or managers or of schools supervisors or teachers get disengaged. This problem has its roots in the outdated idea that any human organization must work like a machine. Human organizations are not mechanisms and people are not components in them. People have values and feelings, perceptions, opinions, motivations, and biographies, whereas cogs and sprockets do not. An organization is not the physical facilities within which it operates, it is the networks of the people in it. To fight off this disengagement of the leadership of our corporations and schools, we need to re-engage by rehumanizing work and education. We can do this by engaging with vulnerability, and recognizing and combating shame. We can start by recognizing how shame breeds fear, crushes our tolerance for vulnerability, kills off engagement, innovation, creativity, productivity, and trust in corporations and in schools. Shame shows up in corporations or schools when the leadership blames, gossips, favorites some, name-call others or harasses. In corporations, shame is part of the culture if it is the preferred tool of management through the criticizing of subordinates in the presence of colleagues, the delivering of public reprimands, or the setting up of reward systems that intentionally belittle, shame or humiliate people. In schools, it is teachers shaming students over perceived inadequacies or inabilities to learn. 35-85% of all men and women recollect a school incident from their childhood that was so shaming that it changed how they thought of themselves as learners. They had suffered a specific incident where their teachers told them they weren't good at something. We learn shame and how to shame in our families of origin and somewhat believe that it's an effective way to manage people or run a classroom. 36. And when the shaming becomes common in the workplace or at our places of learning, people disengage to protect themselves. They don't show up, or refuse to contribute or stop caring. Some would even lie, steal and cheat, and rationalize it. Others would quit work or school altogether. We can fight off shaming in our corporations or schools by making them shame-resilient, by supporting leaders in these corporations or schools who are willing to encourage honest conversations about the bad effects of shame and shaming on their work or learning cultures. We can search out where and how shame functions in our corporations or schools, especially in how we engage co-workers or students. A shame-resilient culture can also be built when we allow people, co-workers or students, freely share their experiences with shaming and how they dealt with it. Finally, the leadership of corporations and schools, as well as the followers, employees and students, should be properly taught to give and receive feedback in a way that fosters growth and engagement. Wholehearted parenting is us daring greatly to be the adults we want our children to be.
Great parenting is not so much what we know about parenting. Rather, it is about who we are as parents. It is not whether or not we parent the right way, but whether or not we are the adults we want our children to grow up to be. We all want our children to be happy, make friends, be successful professionally, and stay safe in the world, but have no idea how we can guarantee these outcomes. We would love to have a handbook that guides us through parenting, answers all those secret questions of ours, guarantees the outcomes we want, and minimizes our vulnerabilities. We would love a how to parent manual. Unfortunately, no such manual exists. There is no such thing as perfect parenting. We cannot guarantee any outcomes we desire in parenting our children. Parenting is filled with uncertainty and self-doubt, which makes it a minefield for shame and self-judgment. It's the reason why all shades of parents have made it into our culture, the attachment parent, the helicopter parent, tiger moms, aloof dads and their likes. It's the reason there is an ongoing national parenting conversation which does anything but help matters. Our sense of worthiness, of being enough, begin in our first families. It is where we learn about ourselves and learn to engage with the world as children. It is where we set a course for ourselves that will either require us spending a significant part of our lives fighting to reclaim out self-worth or will give be us hope, courage and resilience for our lives' journeys. Our behaviors, thinking, and emotions are hardwired within us and influenced by our environment. Our families of origin shape our sense of love, belonging, and worthiness through what we hear, what we are told and most importantly, by how we observe our parents engaging the world. The implication is that, as parents, we have several powerful parenting opportunities in how we help our children understand, leverage, and appreciate their hardwiring, and learning to be resilient in the face of their lives' odds. Our children are watching us closely and they are copying us too. This makes who we are and how we engage with the world much stronger predictors of how well our children will fare in the world, rather than what we know about parenting. Joseph Chilton Pierce puts it in other words, what we are teaches the child more than what we say, so we must be what we want our children to become. The vulnerability parenting comes with might be terrifying at times, yet, we cannot afford to run away from it because it is our richest, most fertile ground for teaching and cultivating connection, meaning, and love. The import is that we should practice the values that we want to teach. Conclusion Daring greatly, by being vulnerable or living wholeheartedly, is a good thing. It will help us live our full and authentic lives, free of any pressure of our society's culture of scarcity. It will keep us focused on what matters like modeling our lives for our children to copy, and exhibiting great leadership in our corporations or educational institutions, and remove our focus from what distracts, for example, keeping up with the Joneses. Our society would be better off for it too. And every time we fail, being vulnerable will give us the inner courage to pick ourselves up and keep trying, until we succeed. Whip out your journal and write down specific instances in your life where the shame and the fear of not being good enough kept you from being vulnerable and living wholeheartedly? What are you going to do about each instance? Do you agree or disagree with the author that being vulnerable is a good thing? If you were to defend your opinion before a group of your friends, how would you go about making a case for or against vulnerability? What key words would you string together as you make your case so as to bring as many of your friends as possible over to your side?